The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good day to everybody. The last time I was here, I shared some reflections on times when it is difficult to make the shift from unwholesome patterns to wholesome ones, with my underlying question being, what's standing in the way of our being liberated already? So um, I especially focused on a sutta that has my interest called The Wilderness in the Heart. Um, as it has this description of a place in practice that is kind of unknown to us, you know, the part that isn't free yet. I think, you know, a few of us here might be intrigued to explore a wilderness. I, I think, I'm not sure whether there are any wildernesses left on earth, but something unknown or unfamiliar, we might start an expedition like that with enthusiasm and maybe a little fear. And then once we were out in a wilderness, we would be, we might be having the time of our life. Um, but we also might be experiencing unexpected challenges that require new skills and a lot of courage. We might even reach a confusing point when we realize that we've been traveling in circles and we're not no longer sure of uh, how to navigate a particular piece of wilderness, how to find our way through to our desired destination. And I would say that mindfulness practice at times can feel a bit like that. Sometimes we know exactly where we're going. We feel confident. Everything seems to be flowing along. And other times we're maybe circling around a little bit or a little uncertain about what's keeping us from freedom. So last week or last time, we especially uh, explored the wilderness of aversion. So today, um, let's explore more about the other places of difficulty that are mentioned by the sutta, especially those wildernesses that feel as if they're not yielding to our regular practices of mindfulness and meditation. So one of the key passages at the beginning of this Wilderness of the Heart Sutta, quotes the Buddha as saying essentially that for anyone who's not abandoned five wildernesses that he defines in the heart, which is translated by another translator as emotional barrenness. If we haven't done that, if we haven't cut off five shackles in the heart that he defines, it's not possible for us to achieve growth, improvement, or maturity in this teaching and training. So that sounded pretty drastic, um, but it's interesting to explore those times when practice maybe doesn't seem to be um, providing what we are hoping for, or maybe we reach these points where practice doesn't feel emotionally fulfilling. 
Maybe it feels repetitive. Maybe it feels dry. And there are times when we might find ourselves wondering, okay, what am I doing? Or why am I doing this? You know, we lose a little sense of purpose at times like this. Maybe. So uh, last time I proposed that we think of periods like this as communication from ourselves to ourselves. And maybe think of Buddhism and Western psychology together as complementary systems that can be used together to help us understand what's happening and to move forward. So I gave the example of sometimes we benefit from telling the narrative of how painful events have unfolded that led to our becoming conditioned to suffering. And in order to begin to understand how we came to that particular wilderness um, or barren stretch, we might have to, you know, have that particular story heard, you know, witnessed by someone else, mirrored back to us. So we know, you know, in our, our nature as humans, we're social. Sometimes we need to be supported in that way. And that could be an integral process of beginning to understand the first noble truth in an embodied way. Oh, this is suffering. Really getting this is what I've been going through. Then the second noble truth can follow that. Oh, this is the clinging that's causing this trouble for me. Another way we can put this message from ourselves to ourselves is here's what how I've been getting in the way of my own happiness. Not in a blaming way, but just only when I fully release myself from being stuck in this particular narrative will I be free of suffering. So when we do that, we can welcome our own curiosity. Like, okay, how do I navigate this? And um, we don't have to expect the solution or problem solve it right now. We can just uh, understand over time, okay, how am I going to navigate this? What what am I doing? What's working? What's wholesome? What's unwholesome? And that gives us a chance to fully see how dukkha, this unsatisfactoriness that's built into conditioned experience, how it's operating. So, for example, um, we could learn that some of our stuckness uh, is rooted in patterns of reacting aversively, reacting negatively when we don't feel seen or heard. And that could be by ourselves or by other people. Um, and once we begin to see that, we might be able to m- nourish ourselves and start to feel a compassion for that. So that's a little review or a taste of what was discussed last time about the shackles of hatred, ill will, and aversion. Um, so this, as I said, the sutta offer five five different shackles or wildernesses uh, it describes um, that prevent us from coming to freedom. <clears throat> Another shackle that uh, is going to be familiar to you, but still, this is what's standing in the way of freedom. It's described this way. One is not free from lust, desire, affection, thirst, fever, and craving for sensual pleasures. 
getting stuck in this emotionally barren wilderness of craving for sensual pleasures might be a little bit like we've been on this team exploring the wilderness, an interesting wilderness, a challenging wilderness we want to see on some remote corner of planet Earth. And we're doing this together. But if we were to suddenly decide instead of working with the rest of our team, uh, we started using up the last batteries of our emergency beacon to binge watch Netflix. <laughs> that wouldn't serve us so well. Uh, the sensual pleasure of binge watching is not going to get us where we need to go in exploring the wilderness. Instead, it's going to distract us from more important things. And, you know, it's not a big deal at first watching one show, but it gets worse and worse the more you continue to drain the emergency batteries in pursuing the pleasure. So you drain your own energy as seeking pleasure and avoiding the challenge of finding your way through the wilderness, and that could endanger everything you worked for up till then. Okay, you know, so that's one idea. So why do we get hooked? <clears throat> on these kinds of cravings for sensual pleasure so strongly that they become compulsions. Um, very often, and this is the part that really interests me, there's a kind of compulsive rumination, a compulsive thinking that inflames the habit of clinging to a sensual pleasure that at one time was just a simple wish to enjoy a pleasant sensation. But it's this repeated thinking about it that becomes craving, this kind of obsessive thinking that repeats itself actually until we relax the stress of the craving by giving in to the desire to obtain the sense pleasure. It's often not actually the sense pleasure itself. It's once we make that decision, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do this thing, that the stress releases, the thinking stops. So if we borrow from psychology to explore what's underneath compulsive behaviors of clinging to sense pleasure, we have the chance to ask the question, okay, what's missing that this craving or this sense pleasure seems to be providing? <clears throat> and once we start looking, we realize that what's missing is not, for example, the alcohol, the drugs, the sex, the food, the Netflix, whatever it is, those are just big arrows of communication from us to us pointing out the mind is trying to tell us there's something missing emotionally and sometimes physically. So if we study the process of craving and addictive clinging long enough, we start to see that it's like being thirsty in a wilderness that happens to be a desert. And we go off and we drink the mirage of the water, which does what? It fills your mouth and stomach with sand, not water. The more we feel craving, the more parched and thirsty we are, the more we crave again and again. So alcohol, drugs, sex, food, gambling, binge watching, any addiction cannot fulfill one's emotional needs. 
it does the temporary relief from craving does not lead to lasting feelings of well-being it leads to more and more stress from more and more craving and by the way this could happen on more subtle levels too even with um you know wholesome sensual pleasures that happen in meditation some people get really stuck in the corner of wanting to and craving to experience the pleasures of jhana practice so they have this beautiful experience of concentration and they they crave it they want to do it again and again um but it's a kind of corner it's not actually liberation itself so these don't have to be you know maybe you you long ago left behind anything as egregious as alcohol addiction or sex addiction maybe you didn't um maybe you're stuck in craving jhanas i don't know you know there's something sometimes that we're craving in order to feel better and ultimately what we may uncover what we're actually craving is happiness some kind of lasting happiness and lasting relief from stress um of course in psychological or biological terms we're seeking a little dopamine release a little biochemical release in the body in order to feel better and as we allow ourselves with practice um and with uh psychology to discover what's beneath not feeling good um we may discover persistently low uh physical states of pleasure in the body um that has genetic origins or we may find we may find a parent or another close relative suffered from addictive patterns also and in other situations that that are not like that we could find that low moods may have been the result or may have become entrenched in our lives in the face of intractably difficult life situations so if we if we're working with something really tough um again and again sometimes that just you know the our mood takes a hit from that either of these can result in a frequent difficult unpleasant emotional state that feels or physical state that feels so low or so bad that it's understandable that we want to feel better and i i think many of us are aware most of us are aware that there can be so much involved in this kind of pattern that it demands to be seen and understood um in such a way that sometimes what's needed is social and emotional support that can be available through therapy traditional 12 step or a buddhist refuge recovery program um and i thought but this is interesting let's say that's not your situation i think it's interesting to read a description of what is done in buddhist refuge recovery programs because it's really the same program that the rest of us are on in practice um it's a great model for how we can practice with craving for sensual pleasure with aversion with anything that's standing in our way with any of these wildernesses or shackles of the heart um and you know those are things that we're coping with all the time so um as an aside i'll say uh one traditional non-traditional you know maybe it's not a pattern that's called addiction in the um medical sense 
but that interests me, and I alluded to it before, is these entrenched patterns of negative thinking, self-judgment, self-doubt, and how I, I referred last week to people who didn't receive the mirroring or the attention maybe that they needed as children, um, that the kind that builds a healthy sense of self, um, this can result in a pattern of unconsciously blaming oneself when things don't go well, when they go wrong. Like, it must be my fault. The other pattern is, it must be somebody else's fault. It must be your fault. <laughs> so we can get in either of these patterns of thinking. And, you know, it really is fueled by, I'll call it obsessive thinking, thinking the same kinds of patterns of thoughts again and again, finding wrongdoing in oneself or in others. And this is a kind of unconscious attempt to make things go well. So when kids do it, or even when adults do it, you know, it's kind of trying to fix oneself so that if we behave just right, if we do everything just right, if I do practice just right, I'll be in in the bliss of the jhanas. Or if I do life just right, no one will have a problem with me. Or if they would just do life just right, I wouldn't have a problem with them. So you can see, um, maybe some of you have experienced that kind of pattern of thinking that is a kind of suffering. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of results of that. People can become people pleasers to their own detriment. They can suppress their own needs and wants or pay strict attention only to their needs and wants and ignore everybody else's around them. Um, there's so many different ways this can play out in our lives. But it, one way is that it can become this kind of self-punishing that one's practice isn't good enough, one's meditation isn't good enough, one's mindfulness isn't good enough. And that's one of these forms, one of these shackles of the heart. So if we take a lack of what we think of as progress on the Buddhist path, because we want so much to be free of suffering, if we t- if we construe our practice as not making enough progress um, and blame it on ourselves, that actually just makes us more stressed out, and you know leads to some of these cravings or these patterns that aren't helpful. Um, I'd say it's a especially difficult. Well, a lot of people struggle with self judgment or judging their practice. Might maybe mildly or maybe in a major way. And it can become so subtle or so conditioned that we don't even know we're doing it anymore. Um, it can be a kind of self-punishment that we resort to every time something doesn't go the way we want in, a, in meditation, in our relationships, in work, any sphere of life. As though blaming ourselves or judging ourselves is going to, you know, spur us to be better. Um, but its downsides, downside is that it creates a level, a, a low-lying or maybe even an extreme level of internal misery that actually leads to craving sensual pleasures in order to feel better. So I hope I've described a little bit of that uh, vicious cycle, and maybe some people here can relate to that. 
So with that, I'll, I'll read this description of refuge recovery and I'll make, uh, it, you know, it's, we all need to take refuge in this system of recovery. So it, it, uh, it starts with the four noble truths. Um, and begins with four actions. So I'll read what you know I've read online about re- refuge recovery, or what I understand it to be, and then I'll give some comment about it. So the first first truth of refuge recovery, playing off the first noble truth, is that addiction creates suffering. So in the refuge recovery program, uh, one takes stock of all the suffering one has experienced and caused through addiction. So we could all say that there may have been times when we've done things that uh, led to someone else suffering, and all too often we've caused ourselves more suffering and more despair, even despair. So if we begin to gently study these patterns without self-blame and self-judgment, but with a kind gentle curiosity, how might this behavior, how might this pattern of thinking be causing me to suffer or be standing in the way of my freedom? Don't Maybe not even using an extreme word like suffering. Maybe it's just how does this pattern stand in the way of complete freedom of the heart, complete happiness? The second truth as described in Refuge Recovery, is the cause of addiction is repetitive craving. So they investigate the causes and conditions that lead to addiction, and they begin the process of letting go. I might put that as we start to see the pattern that leads to our own lack of happiness. We start to see what leads to craving sensual pleasures or repetitive ways of thinking that aren't serving us. And we work on seeing them as they arise. And then the more we see them clearly, the less we actually want to succumb to them. Um, we, We can go so far as to directly remind ourselves that negative self talk is not true. It's not the truth. It's just a pattern. And we can learn a possibly important lesson about letting go. uh, And that is that it works best to let go into a wholesome behavior. It's, It's hard kind of to be told to just drop a bad habit. Sometimes we don't quite know what to do with ourselves or how, how, how exactly do I just let something go? So, it can work better to let go into a wholesome behavior. Uh, So if I uh, am too hard on myself in practice, I could let go into simply observing and enjoying what happens in practice, even if it feels difficult, like, oh, I discovered something new. Uh, An overly simple example, if I'm craving sweets, I can eat a piece of fruit (laughs) instead of going out and binging on candy. The third uh, truth of refuge recovery is that recovery is possible. So freedom is possible. Happiness is possible. Um, 
we can take refuge in the path that leads to the end of stress, dissatisfaction, and suffering. And in refuge recovery, they take refuge in the path that leads to the end of addiction um, by learning to tune into the eightfold path that the Buddha described and to practice it every day, every minute that one can come to awareness that we don't, you know, we're noticing our behaviors and letting go into a set of wholesome habits. So the fourth truth is the path to recovery is available. I'm engaging in the Eightfold Path. The path to happiness, complete happiness, is available through studying and learning from the Eightfold Path and then simply living the Eightfold Path. So then uh, Refuge Recovery goes into the Eightfold Path um, and understanding is number one. It's called wise view in the Eightfold Path. But the understanding we could come to is that our actions have consequences, one understanding, and that therefore wholesome actions are going to have wholesome consequences. Unwholesome actions are going to have unwholesome consequences, usually. There are nuances in this, but that understanding is very important because if actions have consequences, then we have some agency here. There is some possibility of making different choices. The second noble truth, wise intention. So one way we begin to learn to apply this is to recognize, for example, in the pattern of thinking I mentioned, when we're being overly harsh, unkind, harmful, mentally stingy towards ourselves. The third uh, form of the, the third factor of the Eightfold Path is wise speech. And in refuge recovery, they include community. Really, this is all about relationship. And when we learn to find like-minded companions on the path through regular meetings like this and other friendships we form with other practitioners, we begin to learn, um, or even with just our loved ones in our lives, whether they practice or not, we can begin to learn to speak not only in a kind external voice, a truthful external voice that brings people together that's timely, but to use that same voice internally and become more skillful. The fourth factor is wise action. So we learn how to engage in thoughts, words, and behavior that do not harm. That's skillful action. We're not harming. Fifth factor is um, wise livelihood, which in refuge recovery they describe as service. So learning to live and work in ways that support ourselves and others, that produce and consume in a thoughtful way. And what this does is teaches the heart, really, to live in generosity, to live in community, to live in relationship with the people the animals, the insects, the beings on the planet, the plants on the planet, the entire thing. Uh, the sixth factor is wise effort. So we develop habits that help us identify and abandon patterns of thinking, of speech, or of behavior that harm ourselves or others or both. And we can go beyond that to learn ways to cultivate more wholesome behaviors. And we end up just living there. It feels good to live in wholesome behavior. 
Um, the seventh factor is wise mindfulness. And of course, I think mindfulness is already to some extent or even to a great extent, a very reliable and pretty constant companion. Once you start down this path, it, you know, and you cultivate it with regular practice, it becomes pretty, uh, much present, more present than it ever was before you took this up, maybe. It becomes a kind of inner compass. And then the final factor is wise, I'll, I'll call it samadhi, <laughs> that even though the translation is wise uh, concentration by some, it's the samadhi is more than just a narrow focus. It's a settled, stable place from which wisdom can arise. It's a discerning place. So I, I hope you're as inspired as I am to recognize that these same patterns or these same factors that are used in refuge recovery from what would be recognized as medically significant addictions can help us with these other forms of addiction that we may be suffering from, even the most subtle ones. Coming back to these different factors and learning about them in new ways. Um, so that was a reflection I wanted to offer today from that sutta about the wilderness of the heart. Um, I'll continue to explore those in the Thursday evenings that uh, I will offer again starting next week, uh, Thursday evening at 7.30. And these remaining wildernesses that I haven't talked about include doubt, uncertainty, indecision, lack of confidence, which could be in the teachers, in oneself, in the teachings, in the sangha. Lots of different ways these could play out. So any of you are welcome who can come to those sessions. <clears throat> by the way, this week is being taught by Nisha Patel, who's a wonderful teacher and practitioner of this style of practice. And uh, if 7.30 Pacific is not possible in your time zone, I'll record and post the talks on Audio Dharma. But my hope is that this exploration today and the ongoing exploration of these, you know, how we're not yet free will be a benefit to each of us here and everybody that we live with and um, take care of and love. So with that, um, those are some thoughts and I'd love to hear how practice is going for you. Um, anyone who was here last week, if, if any of the stories came up, you know, that you were thinking, oh, okay, this, you know, here's how a story is present in my life that relates to the shackle that is aversion or ill will or difficulty avoiding those kinds of things. Or today, anything anyone wants to share about uh, an aspect of practice that has to do with craving something different than we have already got, craving a sense pleasure. And finally, if you, if you want to talk about something totally different with practice or you have other questions, that's also welcome. So uh, thank you for the person who sent me a chat. That's also a channel you can use. Um, great. Thank you for sharing that, Deborah. So um, 
just getting acquainted with an unfamiliar thing sometimes in these sessions is a new angle that we can apply to our practice. Yes, I was um, really grateful. If you can't hear me, just let me know. I'm not no, I can it. hear you. Thank you. I was really grateful um, to you for um, surprising me a little bit by speaking about um, the refuge and recovery because I teach in that setting. Um, and you don't often hear, at least I don't, this is the first time in the Sangha, which is more generalized, that um, craving outside outside of the teachings but really from recovery perspective was explored you know applying the um four noble truths and how we use them there and, and it works so exceptionally so for me um i guess it's just a special moment and i wanted to just say thank you because otherwise i'm the one always guiding and leading and it's just uh, very very nice to see it normalized outside because i say to them you know um to make them realize that there is um there is a commonality or there is a neutrality because they get put in this bucket where they're discriminated or they're labeled. And particularly in Britain, GPs, our, our doctors can be utterly unhelpful often um, with supporting them. And to be able to say to them, it's the same as what I've realized is that when I need comfort, chocolate cake makes everything all right. <laughs> Or I've noticed that a particular brand of crisps on a difficult day, just one bag is enough to make the day perfect. But it is the same thing that you're going through. Now let's look at how that awareness can then help us unwind it um, a little bit, but applying um, the teachings. So thank you for that. My specific question today comes from practice is a bit, um, I guess, in wilderness, I'm lost. And um, what I've linked it to is that the fire element is very present in me. The cause of it, I understand. But as um, my one of my doctors said to me recently, you need to get it out somehow. So you're starting to take wholesome actions with that unwholesomeness within you. And that's okay. But what I am lost with is how do I take care of the fire element with, you know, with all the practices I have access to? So suddenly I'm going, that isn't quite doing it. Okay, that isn't. And I'm, I just thought rather than scrambling and going one by one, trying to figure out, I pose it to someone here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is a really great question and a deep area of exploration because um you know it's you're saying maybe by going at it one by one what you're feeling is the insufficiency of any one approach and fire the fire within us is a huge source of energy it can overwhelm us it can be so much energy that it it's almost um destructive to us or destructive to others or both but if we can take a combination of approaches wise approaches to our our energy and this huge amount of energy that's coming up um maybe it's a it's a long exploration i i don't know or maybe it takes time 
to come to this. It's actually a very interesting topic to me because I've been thinking about how is it that we can practice the middle way if we're full of fire or if we have if we're suppressed with too little energy how can we find the middle way with energy i'm curious you know what what you've been experiencing so far with each one by one can you say a little bit more about that yes yeah, so it's the fire element just feels unpleasant and i'm looking for a fight I can articulate that. I want to fight. Okay. So, so there's the fire is overwhelming. When I said I use it for wholesome purposes, I took on the British post office on a point of discrimination. Now they fix their pricing. So they don't discriminate against those of us who are more disabled in certain ways. So that's a wholesome, polite, compassionate, but, but right speech way of using my my fight or my fire. There's a second way that I'm taking on the Equality Act with one, just one company, because so that so my practice in some ways is enabling me to see and to choose and act within the middle way. You know, take a wholesome approach, try and get something overturned, but not drag all the companies that are doing this and create more overwhelming work, but pick one. Because that one is where I felt it. That one's where the case is strongest and where the action took place. But what I'm finding is that, um, you know, uh, so I have a, I have many hours in the day where I fit in practice and that, you know, just day-to-day mindfulness. I do washing dishes, just looking at my cup of coffee, a few sips, Um movement or body scan or breath even gratefulness forgiveness they're not calming the fire okay and so i don't know whether it's just a phase and i just have to accept as i am that wow there's this and i label it as unpleasant and i say to someone i trust looking for a fight and there is no fight and that, so I guess I'm not craving. I'm just trying to see that is this somewhere where I just have to allow the storm and live it and be aware that's the practice and continue with the others? Or is there actually um, a particular way to approach this? Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's a way to look at delusions. Maybe it's a way to do specific practice that calms that fire so it's culpable and is not because yeah. it's exhausting me a little bit. I completely hear what you're saying now that, you know, part of the fire that you're engaged with is not yours alone. It is cultural karma that is, you know, there is good reason for tremendous anger sometimes, tremendous energy uh, about injustice, about ways that things have uh, victimized, disproportionately victimized people, um, groups of people. And so I want to acknowledge that and say that part of it may be um, seeing that the fire is not personal, that, you know, like karma, we inherit the karma of everybody who's gone before us and everybody who's with us right now, including not only 
karma from our parents and our ancestors, but what has been wrought by human beings so far on the planet and what is being wrought right now. And that is a lot to try to hold individually. We almost have to have a really big container for it and recognize that you're in the company of billions of people around the world, millions definitely, but I would say billions, who are seeing this and who are fired up about it or some are overwhelmed and crushed by it, but trying to discern this new way of how to be wholesome with this energy. And I appreciate the combination you've come up with. I hear you uh, using the practice to see it, to be with it, to name it as unpleasant, to burn the energy when you sometimes can burn physical energy, to burn the energy in wise ways when you can apply it to uh, a wholesome cause. And and you're, we're all left with the fact that we can't do all of it. You know, we want to tackle all of it, but we can't do all of it. So we're it's almost like we're having to uh, acknowledge what we can do as human beings and join hands metaphorically with other people doing the same and see ourselves as a countertide against ignorance. So I don't know if that helps because I see what you're working with as the issue of our times actually really complex and become it's like um greed hatred and delusion have become so overwhelmingly obvious it's like really does humanity have to you know see this in bigger and more egregious ways until we are just can't stand it anymore i don't know so i i hope those reflections are of some support priyanka but this is a big thing you're talking about. Yeah, no, thank you, Liz. I think the acknowledgement um, in the um, in the way you did it in itself just went, oh, okay. Um, and the understanding of what it is for me, because I've been housebound and isolated for many years because of my disease, and then coming out, I kind of missed a lot of the revolutions and things that have been coming up in society. So thank you. Yeah, thank you very much for bringing it up. Yeah. Just appreciating how that lands in the heart. Lands in awareness right now. There is an awful lot going on that's not only us as individuals, but cultural, um, global. And still, the tools we have are powerful tools. And so, other reflections, other questions or comments, or we can come at this from every level, from the quite individual and personal to the global, and it's all going to be applicable. Hey Liz, this is Michael. Hi Michael. Um, I just want to begin by my deep appreciation for the beautiful guided meditation and the talk on 
the wilderness and I resonated with getting lost and <laughs> and it was just really beautiful and and I mean I was kind of having like you know the No Levine Dharma Punk flashback retreats in a good way uh-huh. from offering this morning and it was just really you know sweet and I guess at this moment what I'm feeling is deep gratitude and joy and huge gratitude for like I'm a tripitta dosha that's very aggressive fire and the way I've learned to work with the energy is walking meditation on the earth my yogi duties gardening with awareness I qigong yoga and I keep moving my body and then also um I really appreciate you talking about the dopamine because that's rarely brought into the dharma circles unless Judd Brewer's talking and um I think sometimes I I I love his framing of unhelpful habits and I think that gives me a lot of freedom and some of the habits that I have that are not is nurturing as they could be to my being and um yeah, like eating too much 85% organic chocolate. But, you know, I know from him and on Olympi, dopamine hit. And, you know, I'm conditioned that way. And, and then the last thing I'll end with is I think that I've also gotten a lot of freedom from just knowing, you know, I heard from a very wise Dharma bud share that you know 400 years of greed and coming to this country from europe and i mean i don't i don't really have a chance to be soft unless i'm fully aware and i also practice the brahma vaharas drink my lemon balm tea and really self-nurture on all levels so deep bows thank you for your kind offering it was very nurturing very, very nurturing. So thank you. Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Working with the earth physically, walking on the earth physically, gardening the earth. Yeah. Thank you. Was that a hand? Couldn't quite spot whether that was just a gesture. Um, Feel free to unmute when you're ready to share. As you know, I'm also available for protests. If part of this sharing was like, what? (laughs) What on earth are you talking about? Or I completely disagree. (laughs) Please say it. Fine. I I liked the metaphor of the wilderness in terms of using up the light that will allow us to find our way through the wilderness. It's a, it's a nice metaphor for that. You know, I'm, I'm missing an opportunity when I do the addiction. I'm missing an opportunity 
to really know what's going on inside. Mm-hmm. And often, as we know, that's difficult emotions or some pattern in ourselves that um, we could we could benefit from knowing more about. And it it's I've been able to do that with food for the most part, but um, there's some other habits that that feels challenging uh, to stop them mm-hmm. and be with what, you know, not listen to the urge because it's so automatic and just be with, um, with what's going on in that moment. Yeah. I like that thinking of it. Oh, this is exploring the wilderness. Makes it sounds so <laughs> inviting. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad that landed for you. And yeah, I mean, I would guess that we each have habits that are so automatic. You know, that and and sometimes they're so subtle or so that we think they're benign. We think they're not that big a deal. And yet they are really, you know, an inability to be with some stuff that's really hard sometimes. I mean, there's I, I would say there's a fair amount of denial that a lot of us live with that enables us to continue to disproportionately burn the planet's resources. And it's not that we won't use resources. Any human who's alive will. But, you know, it's just so hard to face you know, we hop in the car and go do something, uh, and it's just so hard to face the all the ways in which that does cause harm. So, I mean, it's, it's not not always um, it's cultural habits, it's personal habits, and I appreciate your naming, Jan. How automatic some of them are, because you know, and and. Again, self-blame doesn't help. It's just like, how can I open up? How can I see what's really fueling this moment and find a healthier way? Even in just little tiny habits of meditation practice or mindfulness. You know, I'm I'm really very intrigued in thinking and mindfulness and thinking because of how the mind does think. I mean, that's what brains do. They go off and they think and how often that comes up and uh, and just looking at what that's about, what each set of kinds of thinking is about and why it comes up during meditation, which it does. Yes, Helen. Uh, this is my first time joining this group, and uh, I'm uh, telling the truth. I'm a little bit lost. Oh. <laughs> Welcome, <laughs> Helen, and I'm sorry for it being a lost yeah, experience. Um, yeah. I just want to ask, is that... Um, is that, am I in the right place? You are in the right place. And I <laughs> uh, apologize for, uh, in a way, I gave my talk as a continuation of an engagement with this group. 
uh, that I started last week and that I've also done in the past. But um, this is normally taught by Dawn uh, Neal and Marieline Janssen. And what is offered is normally um, a guided meditation, like, you know, similar to what I did, but the first 10 minutes of guidance. And what, and we're, we're all attempting to stay in a style of practice that was taught by Sayadaw Tejaniya and then by Andrea Fella, which mm-hmm. has to do with receiving the flow of experience that goes on from moment to moment, not necessarily object-based, you know, the mindfulness of breath and mindfulness of the body, though those things do enter in, you know, in a moment you may be aware of thinking, another moment you may be aware of sensation in the body. So they offer guided meditations that way. And then they offer a Dharma talk about any topic of the Dharma that they feel will be supportive. And I I got kind of interested in this wilderness of the heart um, before the retreat that you and I were just on. And the subject of the retreat, uh, it was different than this. You know, it was really offering object-based meditation day by day. And it was also supporting serenity, well-being, and confidence as foundational to the ultimate opening up of the three characteristics of existence. Our understanding in a deep way, you know, starting here, but working our way into the deep way of understanding that Everything is impermanent or inconstant, we should say. Nothing can be relied on as it's always going to be there as a source of happiness. The second thing uh, that things are, the characteristic of conditioned existence is dukkha. In other words, it's unsatisfactory. It's never going to be completely satisfying. No matter how we engineer our lives or maneuver ourselves, dukkha will happen in conditioned existence. And the third of not-self, that there's nothing, including us, that has a fixed essence that we can cling to or count on. We're a process, and everything around us is a process that's unfolding. So coming into that realization that doesn't have to hang on to, I'm this way, or I'm that way, or my partner is this way or that way, or life is this way or that way, because maybe it's pretty familiar to most of us here now that we've been through in the last decade some pretty revolutionary differences that most of us didn't expect. Some of us might have, but I think things like the pandemic have caught people very by surprise, like, oh my gosh. And then um, the behavior of certain world leaders, the things that are unfolding constantly is like, wow, never saw that coming. So we're in this, uh, you know, unfolding. So anyway, Helen, I appreciate your naming. Wow, what are you talking about? (laughs) Coming off that retreat, this could feel a little (laughs) like being dropped into, you know, another planet and not not knowing what language is being spoken. I'm interested. I think this is a little bit deeper than than, uh, what I have been exposed to but I'm getting there. So, and also, uh, if I'm just coming to the Tuesday session, am I missing anything? You know, the, for the Thursday, I won't be able, it's too late for me. Uh, sure. Um, come to Tuesday and enjoy Tuesday. 
Um, I offer, I try to offer something different on Thursday than Don and Mario line are offering on Tuesday. I try to kind of keep things fresh for those people who do Mm. sometimes get to come to both. Um, But these are some opportunities to do this moment by moment, changing flow of experience kind of practice. Um, There are other teachers at IMC teaching on Sunday mornings, Monday nights, um, Thursday, let's see thursday no they don't have anything in the morning and then some some things on saturdays some other things via zoom and some of these other things are based on object-based meditation practices we're we're living together as close cousins i actually practice both ways and i find benefit from both and at some point to me they come together but that's a whole nother idea I won't burden people yeah. with that. But yeah, Helen, I'm I'm really welcome. I'm glad you're here. Thank and you. you can definitely experiment and see, you know, which of these online offerings suits your schedule and also suits what uh, serves your practice at this time. So good to see you. We have about four minutes left, so... Anybody wants to bring up something they haven't mentioned yet? It's welcome. I just had a question, I guess sure. a follow-up. What was coming up for me is um, what, what you said has led me to question whether in your experience or what you're hearing me say and present with, it would be helpful or um maybe enjoyable is that word and with caution to participate more in whether it's a sangha or a like-minded group because it can be outside of the Buddhist group as well that is going through a similar challenge or a sort of realization of um how uninclusive or how isolating life can become at the moment for me in in my particular context because I haven't been disabled before so this is a new experience and then when you work so hard to return to life suddenly life is shutting down on you because the world is moving at a faster pace and uh, you can't keep up um, with it in any way, or he doesn't really care whether you keep up or not. Um, even for those who are not disabled, I'm starting to realize they don't necessarily like it. Yeah, true. Yeah, change. So, um, but I've I've done a lot of my practice, and my personality tends to be that of a, I guess, what my supervisor calls you're the one that goes in the forest practitioner. You're very happy on your own. You just can spend the next seven years, just one practice of five and you really don't need another teacher. One phrase is enough for you and you'll be off and you'll be in utter equanimity and ease and wholesomeness. But I have been finding sanghas, like even this one, where, ah, oh, okay, I relate. It opens me up. I can actually speak. Um, what is my experience? Is that helpful or should I just stay with what I've got and um, not try and chase this, you know, collective karma and just allow my experience to unfold and lead me wherever it leads me? 
um, because it could be a passing fire. I'm just aware it came up in the last two weeks. Uh huh. And what I would share with you is experiment and see what serves you because there can be um, either periods of time when we want to be in the forest and we're content and practice a long time off of one phrase. And there can be a time when the companionship of Dharma friends is hugely helpful. Spiritual friends of this kind is hugely helpful. And there may be times when a mixture is needed. And so I think you can afford to see what serves you, what, what feeds you, I should say. And then, you know, you can drop something when it doesn't feed you or leave it temporarily, come back. You know, some of these things have the advantage of being very steady offerings that have been going on for years. And you can, you know, rejoin and leave as often as needed for your particular circumstance. So, yeah, hope that's helpful. So thank you all so much for your practice and your kind uh, attention today and what you shared with one another, your presence with one another. And if you'd like to unmute and say goodbye to each other, please do that. Thank you.